If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support us in exchange for exclusive access, early access, and so, so, so much more, check us out over on Patreon. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash aaopera. Hello, 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 and welcome back to AA Opera episode 46. And the finale of season three. <laughs> Actually, how we have done some. This has been, I think, our best season yet. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, I mean, the guest alone today. We recorded Roderick's episode back in August. And oh boy, have I been excited to, like, <laughs> express that Roddy was joining us on the podcast. For all these months, I've been containing it inside. <laughs> quiet, quiet, quiet. No, but I mean, we had Brindley Sherritt, we've had Jennifer Johnson, we had some amazing singers on here, and we've been consistently uploading every single Friday at 12 o'clock without fail. Yes, this is real now. This is our thing. This is our thing. <laughs> We do this now. <laughs> but before we uh, get on to this week's episode, uh, Abby, how's your week been? I have some fantastic news. My visa was finally approved, and now I'm allowed to stay in the UK for two more years as an artist, as a freelance artist. So that's incredible. Is this the time to stay freelance? We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to enjoy the fact that <laughs> I get to stay. Maybe, you know, you could switch to a career in cyber. <laughs> Fatima did. Well, if Fatima did, then it's it's for us all, isn't it? <laughs> but she doesn't know it yet. Um, but yeah, no, that's been incredible. And I have been binge watching like only feel good TV because I think last week we agreed that I was a bit too negative about the politics of the world. So instead, I joined the rest of the women in the world and watched. Emily in Paris. Now, Ashley, you have to watch Emily in Paris. Okay. Oh, yes, I've seen it, and I've thought, oh, yeah, I'll fancy that, but, um, yeah, Okay, it's a full must, disclaimer, it? it's not a good TV show. It's just one that you have to watch. It's much better than Selling Sunset. <laughs> so, okay, all right. If I can sit and watch Selling Sunset, which is the ultimate trash, but I love it. Yeah. I like it. This is, like, actual acting, but very predictable. It's, it's like, the new Sex in the City. Okay. All right. Fine. I'm up for this. I mean, my best friend and I, I texted my best friend. I was like, have you watched Emily in Paris? And then she texted back, I just finished it all in one night. I was like, okay, good. So we're on the same oh, page. Oh, wow. <laughs> but how's your week been? It's been good. Yeah. I've just been saying it's it's flown by, though. Like, <laughs> it's it's the end of the week what's going on i know um this morning i wasn't sure we had planned what time we were doing this i was just like wait what (laughs) oh it's thursday oh it's thursday (laughs) yeah um but similar like i've just been making sure that i've been chilling out in the evenings my days have been super busy um with all sorts of stuff so i've just been chilling out in the evenings and i am quite happy to see that gradually there are some new shows coming out on on Netflix and stuff like recently I've seen I thought oh all TV um has just stopped producing because of corona um but that is not the case there's some absolute crackers on there yeah like Bake Off oh, Bake Off oh. yes I think we talked about Bake Off last week didn't we? 
Did I we? I think we did. I can't remember. It's just my it's my happy place now. <laughs> you know? It's like at least Tuesday night you know something happy's gonna happen. <laughs> That's it, yeah. But let's get on with the episode, because we have baritone Roderick Williams with us. And he I mean he doesn't really need any more um, introduction does he absolutely not but it is a cracker of an episode filled with advice for you to soak up and just fantastic interesting stories so we hope you guys enjoy delighted to be joined by Roderick Williams. Roddy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sure many of our listeners will know exactly who you are, uh, but for our listeners who are new to opera, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, yes, uh, I am indeed an opera singer and I have been an opera singer for about 25-30 years and Opera singer, I think, is always a good default setting. That's what I think I'd tell someone um, uh, at a party or when a cab driver says, you know, so what do you do? And I say I'm an opera singer because it's a shorthand mm. for classical singer. But actually, um, I, do, I do sing opera, but I sing lots of other things as well. I sing concerts and recitals. I record a lot and I write a bit of music. I do an awful lot of things that makes up um, what someone described me recently as a portfolio career. And I quite like that. That Sunday. But basically, (laughs) easy, easy, two words, opera singer. Yeah. That is what we do. (laughs) Yeah. It's also very true. It's always like you get into the cab, is always the one thing. So it's like, so what do you do? I'm an opera singer. Oh, oh. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. They can also be quite dismissive. It says, oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) You you can sing pop music then. All right. Okay. I always go back to one of my. when before I was in the army, so a lot of the draft days yes. it's like before you have to like get medical tests and stuff like that. And one of the days is there, so not everyone in Israel knows what opera is. But my favorite thing was I said, "Oh yeah, no, I want to be an opera singer." And he goes, "Oh, so so you sing in English?" And I just went to him, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that works. Okay." <laughs> I had expected that result re- re- answer. Yeah, good. But yeah. After that uh, very <laughs> great introduction to what an opera singer really entails, where did it all start for you? And what was your first experience at the opera? Well, that's a very interesting question. It all started for me because my older brother used to sing in the, um, the cathedral choir at Oxford, um, at the uh, Oxford Cathedral, Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford. And he went to the choir school there and I kind of followed in his footsteps. Um, he was the head chorister in the, in the cathedral choir, and I didn't quite make it to the to that uh, to those heights. But I was certainly used to singing. My parents are great listeners to music and great amateur practitioners, but they're not they're not professional musicians at all. But they're, they're very receptive to it. So when my older brother started singing, and I followed in his footsteps, my younger brother also he he was uh, he became a classical guitarist for a while when he was young and he went to business and he's he's a teacher now so all three of us boys are music musical and that was normal in our household and you know as well as i do that what's normal in one household might seem strange in another but in our household classical music was entirely normal jazz and, and pop and other things too you know we weren't we weren't um, eggheads about the whole thing but we just that that's where it all started and in actual fact i go further than that that this this opera thing which i've kind of stumbled into a little bit later in life my mother was a massive fan of those early karayan um puccini recordings 
with Maria Callas mm-hmm. singing as high, yeah. a little bit higher. Um, and she used to cook to them um, when uh, when she was preparing Sunday lunch. She would um, have that on the kitchen. She would banish the rest of us so that we didn't laugh when she sang a little bit sharper than Callas sometimes. And um, <laughs> uh, so so we got used to the sound of opera without knowing anything about it, anything about the plots, anything about whatever. It's all sung in Italian. See previous conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but we just got used to the sound of music, the sound of the music, not the sound of music, the sound of the music and um, yeah. uh, uh, so it, it's really weird because my upbringing is really through church choirs and church music English church music and and as a boy then as a, an, a young adult and I only got into opera uh, through the Guildhall School of Music and Dramas where I studied when I was almost 30 uh, I was quite late to that party and um, and then I really enjoyed it I loved you know dressing up in costumes and being someone else and sword fights and stuff like that it was great fun and, and i've enjoyed that ever since and it, it was kind of a sort of random way in if you like yes and that segues lovely into the next question which was ah. um, which is what was the biggest lesson you learned whilst you were at music college a lot of our listeners are currently in that system now and we'd love to know that. Well, all right. a lot of people's roots, I mean, everybody's route into this industry, into the music college and everything like that is, is individual. So my particular route, as I've described, was I was a bit older than, than many of the students around me because I went into the opera course, as I say, when I was at, right at the end of my 20s. Um, and I had come from a choral scholarship background. So I was trained in my early 20s as a sight reading machine. Um, and uh, I took great pride in that, as choral scholars sometimes do. I had a, I think I had a, probably had a, a decent enough, useful voice. But my teacher at the Guildhall, David Pollard, he he could hear something. He could hear a different potential in me, and and so he he suggested I come to the Guildhall and, and work on that. So look, I, I one of the things I immediately realised is that uh, sight reading is not the be on an end all. In, 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 well, the opera is a different world to that sort of choral world. Um, in fact, David Pollard says something to me quite interesting, and I didn't realize this until afterwards. He said, why don't you come to the Guildhall, Roddy? He said, because you will, you will get a, a very good idea of where you fit in, in the scheme of things. And I, I, I wouldn't, I, I'm not, I hope I'm not an arrogant man, uh, but I, I might have thought I would fit in at the top of the near the top of the food chain, you know, I was a choral scholar. That's what we're programmed to think, um, because I had this a particular set of skills. But what I'd never encountered before, really, was, or as far as I can remember, is people who could make me cry by the way they emoted when they sang. And I have in mind some of my um, some of my friends and colleagues at the Guildhall, people in the year above, certainly when I started on the first of the opera course, who sang with such um, a raw uh, honesty and emotion that they made me tear up when I was li- listening to them and watching them and they, w- they could act and it, of course acting had never been required of me or any of the music I'd made if I'm, I'm sure I did a little bit of opera before getting the guilt or tiny little things but but to see people who who were just um, in tune with themselves in a way I'd never seen before was was a revelation and also to, to notice that not all of them really read music not not the way that 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 I thought reading music was about, you know. 
And when when you're saying a coaching, when when you're saying a rehearsal, you know, you know, actually, this is a this is this is a crotchet and needs to be a minor third below something like that. You could see someone looking really uh, confused and at sea, which is my <laughs> yes. world. You know, yeah, talk to me about enharmonic changes. You know, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But 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 that was kind of irrelevant. Once they knew a piece, they they had it inside in a way that I could only dream about. So that was, I think, probably my biggest learning curve. It becomes the Guildhall. That's really interesting because you say that and then you went into well and then you went into doing a lot of Britain which we on this podcast are huge fans of yep. Britain. Yep, he, yep. He, yeah, it. he comes up quite a bit and now it's just like where can we we have we fit him in more in our lives. Um <laughs> and as you say you also have an extensive portfolio career of Britain at this point. I just like I have kind of a two-part question. Do you have do you find that because you have that thought process of the harmonies and the melodies and the way that you do from that choral background and the love of music that he makes, do you think that's helpful to learn his music? And then my question after that would be, which is your favorite Britain to sing? Okay, I can do, I can hold on to the favorite Britain one. That's going to be an easy, short, a shorter answer than the long answer okay. I'm going to give you about the first bit. And that's, I, I, I think, uh, uh, British music s- strikes such a chord with me for a large number of reasons that um, that uh, that I feel a particular uh, love and affinity for his music. And it inspires not only the way I sing but also the way I write music because I, 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 the composition I write is probably uh, um, very much on the back of the Britain that I know. Uh, that one of the first proper classical music experiences I can ever remember having. And I'm sorry if people have heard this story before, because I realize I've told it a few times, but it is important. It's also true, which is handy. Um, it's, it's always good. <laughs> it's, it's good to base something in truth, at least, isn't it? And then build on it from there. But in the old days, when um, when cinema, uh, when you go to the, went to the cinema, there used to be a short film before the main feature. Uh, they're just testing the audience out to see if you know, see the buffets up, whatever. So there's a short feature about glass blowing, I remember really random <laughs> and i wouldn't be surprised if they'd used the variations on a thing by frank bridge for kind of all the film but but i don't remember but what i do remember is the single movement the funeral march that has the lower strings just on this ostinato and then the, the, the high strings are wailing across keening across the top of it <laughs> i got the hairs on the back of my neck just thinking of it now and this music just hit me absolutely it it, it just woke me up to something yeah. to classical music as being a thing and because i say my parents listened to all sorts of different things one of the things they had very particularly was uh the recording the old recording decca recording of midsummer night's dream yeah. and they used to put this on from time to time and uh, I remember being young enough to experience the opening of that. If you remember the string glissandi at the beginning of that piece, yeah. it's just the murk of yeah. the forest. And I knew that piece when I was too young to know that was a string orchestra. So for me, it just sounded like a forest moving. I didn't know mm-hmm. what that was, but it's just like a sound effect. And then all the things that you might that might appeal to a young boy at that age, you know, the, the, the fact that the children sing the fairies at the beginning, and and just the sound of it. So when I was a teenager, I remember picking bits of that opera out. And this is not the answer to the second question, by the way. 
picking bits of it out on the piano um, uh, and uh, the, the little thing that Lysander sings, the course of true love, and I never did run. That, that, that little phrase, uh, I, I, I have quoted it obsessively in pieces I wrote time and time again. So actually the Britain estate might be after me now. Sorry about that. But, <laughs> but that, that became like a, an, an idifix for, for me for, it, it, because it, it spoke to me musically in, 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 in some real way. So um, that's just part A of an answer to the question one, all right? Because part B is the fact that I was hearing opera in English. The, the Britain that I knew it, the, that was in English, of course, is my language in a way that the Puccini Italian wasn't. And also, not just that, but that I could understand the words in real time because Britain sets them so cleverly. He sets them to be understood and to be expressive in English. Uh, so uh, another record my parents had was the War Requiem with that incredible dark foreboding black um, LP cover box cover with the white writing in the middle I mean it's chilling yeah. just to hold it into your, in your hands let alone put it on the on the record player and and to hear um, the sounds of war uh, relayed in music like that was kind of um, thrilling to a young boy than a than a, a teenager in a way that's is, is difficult to describe because if you know the music then you know exactly what I'm talking about but <laughs> Yeah, and and it, re it really hit home. So so the the way Britain writes in English has a direct effect on on the way I write in English and also the way I sing in English, um, mm. uh, because his desire to be understood in real time kind of informs the way I sing in English and in fact in any language as a result. And now the answer you've been waiting for. Drum roll, Drum roll please. Oh, well, um, it, I think. It's a toss-up between Billy Budd and Peter Grimes, obviously, because you know, obviously, for me, yeah, no, obviously, <laughs> obviously Billy Budd because I'm a baritone, and uh, but actually, it, it was Billy Budd before I was a baritone, before I realised I might sing it. The, you have to remember, mm -hmm. I got to this music bef way before I thought I might be a singer. Um, so that secondary, it's just, it's just things about them blowing. Just, just, <laughs> oh true. my God, you know that whole se section as it, uh, is it. As it changes from one scene to other, the sound of the sound of the sea, either on the coast to Alborough, or in in you know off off the coast of Spain or whatever, it's just awesome. I also have to say, like his music is just so word painting, yeah. like it's just pure word painting, yeah. and. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it because it was before I lived here. But you're—I've seen snippets of the War Requiem that you did with Ian L, yeah. which was like stage. That was incredible. Like it just brought every single aspect of Britain to stage yeah. Yeah. in a way that was just so captivating. It's, it, it's sort of that because it, 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 the word painting is, is part of it, but also the, the music is cinematic in the very best sense. So even when you're not using the words, uh, when we're not saying it, even it's just in the scene changes or, or it, it, take the sea interludes from the Grimes, for example, um, that's properly cinematic without it necessarily being what you might call B-movie black and white cinema music. You know, it's yeah. beautifully descriptive. So, so as you sit listening to a Britain opera score, you can see the pictures, you can see the coast to Albra in Grimes, or you can see the boat, uh, the, the ships, are not boat, the ship at sea <laughs> in Bud. And I have to say, you just, just mentioning um, 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 Israel there, I, I was involved in um, a production in Tel Aviv um, 
it was the old Francesca Zambello production. We arrived in, in Israel, I, oh goodness knows how long ago. Must, must have been at the end of the 90s, maybe beginning of the 2000s. And I was singing Novice's Friend there. Um, and, you know, very much associates the, the heat of Israel below decks. <laughs> it was, it, 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 with, with that sort of experience of being crammed together in the ship. And uh, it's particularly, it was particularly poignant because, of course, it's an entirely male cast. Yeah. Um, and um, once you've been rehearsing that for a number of weeks, it the, the male uh, uh, atmosphere can become a bit oppressive. Uh, <laughs> oh, there really? Were, there, were two, there were two or three very short um, stage managers who were female on this, who, of course, are patrolling the rehearsal room full of all these men gassing away and all this sort of stuff. So they're patrolling it on the edge, uh, given that the the costumed members of the of the of the ship's non-commissioned officers are meant to be uh, patrolling us as well and i remember particularly my two words of um of, of hebrew sheket bevakasha they would say because <laughs> we'd be gassing away just chatting silence please for goodness sake shut up sheket bevakasha <laughs> that is the, those two words are so repeated in, in hebrew all the time <laughs> because getting silence in a room full of israelis is the hardest thing ever <laughs> you said it not me i just <laughs> that's fine i don't mind but like if there's this whole rant that they do also with kids in like a preschool it's like check it, bevaka sha. Hey, check it, bevaka. Hey, sha. It's a bit different over in the UK. All we kind of have in primary school, it's uh, fingers on lips. Yes. Fingers on lips. Yes. <laughs> that's that's our alternative. If you put up the hands one at a time, and you see that suddenly the teacher's got their hand up. Everyone has to put their hand up in silence. Yeah, yeah. Does not work in Israel. That <laughs> would never work. In <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so you've obviously you said with Britain one of the best things was about singing in your own language and really connecting with that. Obviously, not every operatic role is the case if you're singing Puccini. Have you any advice for preparing a role? Do you follow a particular process, especially with um, working with foreign texts? I know I don't have any particular advice. I don't have any particular routine. I mean because. Uh, I, uh, it always seems so strange how anybody uh, memorizes a role. Um, so, so, you know, day one and you get the phone call and say, would you sing this? You go, yeah, 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 I'll sing it. And particularly if it's a new work, you go and get the score from somewhere, it gets sent to you, or you go and buy it, you know. And then and it, and you look at it, you put it on the kitchen table, look at it and go, oh my God, I've got to learn that from memory. Say it's a Handel opera with Acres of Restative or something like that in Italian. You're looking at this going, how am I? How how am I going to learn that? And yet, somehow, you also know that come first night, it will be a part of you, like like a set of clothes you can put on or a skin. It just it could be it'll be so there. So I don't. Sometimes I don't know actually how you get from the kitchen table moment to first night. I'm sure lots of people have different processes. Some people have got photographic memories. Other people go to coaches and drum it in. Others sit with headphones on, on, on the tube in the old days and, and listen to something over and over. You know, we all have our different ways. But I'll tell you one thing that I, that I do find uh, quite fun it, it, because, you know, when you've done work with, an, with a director who likes hot seating 
and asking questions you know about your character that aren't in the score you know, you know what's mm. your middle name or what's your favorite color and all that stuff it, it it is quite fun to to think around your character um sometimes just flights of fancy and uh, sometimes you know you could do real research you know reading the source material mm. if that helps it doesn't always help but uh, so someone like for example someone like billy budd i remember thinking a lot uh, when i finally got a chance to play billy it's almost 50 years old 50, yeah, 50 almost 51 in fact so it's quite an old billy um but i, I was thinking <laughs> about billy quite a lot because he can sometimes come across come across as a bit of a cipher um it, the role of veer and the role of claggart fantastically written and Billy is, it can be, hmm, I don't know, it, it, it's, it can be a thing. So I was trying to imagine how Billy got to be on the ship, the rights of man, before he got onto the HMS Indomitable. Imagined what life he might have had beforehand. And particularly, I was playing slightly on the idea of, of, of my happening to have um, darker skin colour than some of the blonde blue-eyed billies of the past like for example sir, sir thomas allen one of the most famous mm -hmm. billies of all time and he's just a sort of rugged british man you know and, <laughs> and i'm not that so i was thinking right well what you know what can i bring to it and i was thinking well supposing su supposing um billy had jumped ship supposing he was a runaway supposing he'd he'd had a supposing he had an experience on land as this foundling that had caused him to need to run away to sea, to escape something. Supposing Claggett's not the first person he's hit, and maybe even, not, not necessarily killed, but certainly the first person he's hit when he's, his stammer lets him down. And what if that person he hit was maybe the, the person who brought him up? You know, some vicar in a small village somewhere who's had the the basket handed to him and maybe the vicar didn't have a wife who knows but these are the, it's always father figures that billy latches on to well obviously in billy bud there are not many maternal figures around so that's an easy no but, but you see I'm, I'm just constructing this back history for billy that's got you know it's nowhere in the in the plot and, and this is this was fun i was just thinking about it more so much so that i asked the director Incidentally, she happens to be my sister-in-law, so that's an easy one. I asked the director if Billy, if I could have some um, uh, uh, scars on my back from where I had been flogged, because you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, conjecturing now. Um, supposing, um, you know, in that sort of Napoleonic era, uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a, a, a stretch of the imagination to think that a person of my sort of colouring might have encountered uh, a whip, you know, from time to time. So I just wanted to throw that in because then Billy's got some some story to him. He's got the, the violence in him. He's a violent man. He, he's, you know, he's bloodthirsty like any young guy. He said, yeah, give me the French, I'll tear him apart and all this stuff. I wanted to explore that part of him so that it doesn't come across as a saint. Um, so that's, a, again, I do apologize, that's a hugely long answer. No, I think you've, you've hit on something really important there in just that the drama is just as, as important as the, as the singing, yeah. as the words that you're saying, like you've got to really connect with your character, which especially in uh, quick production processes that yeah. can often be forgotten about. Yeah. And then it's also left up to you to do it and not for the director to put, like, feed you the information. Absolutely. And, and you, you, of course, you know, the, uh, um, 
your, the director and other colleagues can feed something into so you can change your mind. You don't have to be set in stone, but it's much, it's much easier. Yes, if you do some of this work beforehand, you can bring something to the room um, so that it's just a feeling that you've thought about it rather than, rather than pr preparation for an operatic role simply being getting the notes right and memorizing it like I was talking half an hour ago about, you know. Uh, 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 that, 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 that's not the end of the job. Some of the fun parts of the job are putting the score down and just imagining, you know, who you are. And it, it, it's an amazing part of it. Actually, you were just saying something about uh, connecting to a role. And it's, it's, it's really interesting when you, can, you connect to a person whom you either actually don't like very much or actually uh, uh, are revolted by. Because that, that's, that's, that's opera, isn't it? When we play uh, heroes and heroines who are hugely flawed and, uh, and, uh, and do some despicable things and make some extraordinary choices that I'd like to think we as adults would never make. And yet you could, it's interesting to look inside you and think, okay, so here's the situation and my character makes this choice and decides to murder that person. It's quite, you know, what does that feel like to, 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 to think this is the only course of action is to choose, choose that and then make it believable. And it's fun. That is, yeah. And I just, am, since you don't only do opera, as we say, opera singer is a blanket term, but you do uh, concerts and, and you have recordings and you also compose. Do you feel that you have to bring those um, similar aspects of developing a character into every single thing that you do? Or do you have a completely different way of looking at each um, type of repertoire? Like, this is a concert, so this is Handel's Messiah. I'm just here to sing and make you feel good about Christmas. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, or indeed Easter. Uh, yeah. And I, I have a feeling um, that, that unconsciously, without thinking too much about it, um, my approach would be generally speaking the same. And then all the obvious differences, which I might just spell out a few, uh, would come into play. For example, uh, Handel's Messiah, if I'm doing a concert performance in my tales, it's not only is it not in costume, I'm not often not playing a central character um, and I'm not required by convention to sing it from memory. Even someone like Elijah, who is a character from beginning to end, you're not expecting me to turn up um, in makeup and a costume when you see me come to do Elijah <laughs> on stage. And I, I have sometimes found it amusingly odd when in concert, people say, oh, we want this to be very dramatic. Could you sing to the person over there? And so what we sing, want me to turn around and sing behind me to the little boy, you know, is looking for, for rain. We want me to turn around because the audience is facing that way. This, so there are many times, like even in a Bach Passion, uh, in a traditional Bach Passion performance, where I'm thinking, this is not a dramatic situation. The, like we were discussing about um, Britain earlier on, the sets and costumes will be done by the composer in the music. Yeah. But I'm here in my tails or dark suit, and I'm going to perform, uh, I'm gonna take part in some sort of ritualistic act rather than perform a character. And that gets, this is also quite funny when you do opera in performance, in, in, yeah. in concert performance. Yeah. And you get members of the cast saying, oh, please kneel or don't get up. And we're all standing there. <laughs> so, so it, people, everybody's happy with that. When you see the conventions that everybody's just standing there, we're all singing with our scores or whatever, 
uh, then you realize that you just have to sort of close your eyes in some way and understand it, use your imagination to watch it as an operatic performance. The, funny enough, the boundary between opera and a leader recital, for example, is sometimes quite blurred. In that, okay, I'm not in costume there either, but when I'm singing something like Die Schöne Müller in the Schubert Die Schöne Müller, and where I'm playing a single character over 20 songs, um, then I can keep the thread of a story from beginning to end. I can choose to do that. Um, and I've done uh, performances of Winterreise or Winter Journey because I sing it in German or English. I've done performances of that where I have moved around a lot within a space in and amongst the audience. It's not being a character in the same way as a named character in La Boheme, which I'm rehearsing at the moment, Marcello. It's not a named character with certain feelings going on there. I'm an abstract character in Winter Journey. Um, but that continuity is, is there. Or sometimes even in individual songs, if I'm doing a, a set of Wolf songs, some of which last one minute, 13 mm. seconds, yeah. for that one minute, 13 seconds, I'm a character and having fun in that little yeah. show. And then I move on to the next. Yeah. yeah. It's like um, I did for my final recital, the Mahler uh, Lieder und Gesange, which you've also recorded. Uh, uh, Lieder eines fahrenden Gesellen. So let me get my grammar right. Yeah, that, yes? that one. Yeah. And there's the, I always found it very difficult because he, he does like a lot of ones that are based on stories from other places, like yes. the, the um, Don, Don Juan, and then there's the, but then there's like Erinnerung, which I can never pronounce, yes. where I'm like, I don't know what this is about. Like I have, I, am, I need to make up an entire story here yeah. to make this work. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what, that, that, that's music to my ears <coughs> because um, when you're suddenly bewildered by a short song like Erinnerung, um, um, Remembrance, isn't it? Um, uh, it? You fill in the gaps. And because there's no director or indeed conductor or any of that team sort of saying, you know, here's our storyboard, here's the costumes, here's the, here's the backstory and all stuff, you have to do it all yourself. And it can be fascinating for an audience to watch a single song like that where you have this stuff going inside your head you don't need to explain the context to anybody, but it's just clear, particularly when the piano is playing before and after you sing. Yeah. It's clear that there's stuff going on behind your eyes. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I love what you say about constructing a backstory, you know. Kind of, as you say, excellent for the audience as well, because if they often go to, to recitals, you can guarantee that once they see a performance of that, it's totally unique and they'll not see something, not see it performed in the same way. Okay, so, so let me jump in on the back of that and say, say there are two things I think audiences can see very quickly. They can see mm. when someone has rehearsed a set of moves in a song recital or a single song. Uh, that, you know, when, when they do this, this hand come, comes up and they laugh. <laughs> and there's a set of facial expressions that they've, they've locked into when they sing a song and it mm. becomes mannered and somehow false. And they can also see, I think, when a singer has got nothing of that backstory going through their heads, but actually is just thinking, right, I've got two and a half bars before I come in, and I must <laughs> yeah. breathe at the end of the second bar to make sure that on the halfway through the, 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 the uh, third bar, I come in at the exact right time, and it's on a G sharp. Ah! <laughs> but that's also part of the rehearsal process of performing in front of an audience and getting that muscle working. Is it, is it something 
that you can learn or is it something that you're either born with? No, I don't, I, I, I don't know about born with exactly, but I think I learned the art of performance by being a school teacher in my early 20s. I taught at a, at a boys' school for three years. And, uh, you know, a barrister, I'm sure, would say the same. And all manner of, uh, of jobs that require you to stand up in front of people and to a certain extent play a role but also um, desire to, to be understood in real time and hold the attention of a room over quite a long period is definitely, for me, comes from teaching. It's, it's about being in front of an audience. That's the main thing. Um, uh, I think a lot of singers, possibly myself included, do our best singing either in a singing lesson or in the shower. Yeah. Or in, in any tiled room where you've got the most awesome close acoustics and you just think, hey, this is a brilliant place to sing. And away you go and it's amazing. But, and things that you can do in one breath and low notes and high notes that come out of that stuff. Now, in front of an audience suddenly, that all changes. And if, if you're a tall human and you have an adrenaline rush, um, then things that came naturally to you suddenly desert you and you've got to deal with that. And you can't replicate that anywhere else. You have to have an audience. It doesn't have to be a big audience, um, but it's, it, it's only then on stage in front of people that you can practice um, dealing with the performance issue, issues mastered rising. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I'm not a, I do suffer from nerves uh, like any normal human being. I have seen some people who are so ice cold, it looks like, they've managed to separate that somehow that out and they're able to just kind of do whatever they want in any situation. And I marvel at that. And I sometimes wonder, is that useful? Um, without the adrenaline of the moment, then you get the feeling they might just be phoning it in. And I don't, I don't buy that somehow. So um, people, people say to me sometimes, you know, are, are, do you get nervous? Yes. Are, are, are nerves, you know, are they useful? And I think in, for, for that, reasons specifically to keep us fresh and alive to the moment rather than just phoning something in that's become so routine you're not really there anymore. So you, you may have already answered this when you were talking earlier about really looking into the background of a role and creating your character. Could you tell us what you most enjoy about your career as an opera singer? Um, I love rehearsals. I really enjoy playing with with colleagues that I trust, friends, colleagues that I trust, and and you can make friends, colleague friends, really quickly. Actually, about three notes in, <laughs> you realize, oh, this person, this person's going to be fun. We're going to have fun here, and and, and I I do enjoy performing a lot. I wouldn't do it if I it, 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 I wouldn't do all this stuff if I didn't. Um, and what we were just talking about in terms of standing in front of audiences, that's a different thing, and I do enjoy that. I get a huge amount out of that. But the thing. I, I suppose it just, I don't know, I just, I, I love mucking about. I just love rehearsals and finding things out about people. Um, and when I say that, I mean, I mean, finding things out about characters, all of us just talking about things, what makes people tick. And also finding out about the actual people I'm singing with. Mm. Or, you know, the music staff, the directorial staff, the stage management staff, you know, just finding out about people and, and how we interact. I, I, I love it. It's, it's strange. 
it's always a it's, it's a it's a different moment when you get towards the the, the dress rehearsals and uh, suddenly you get the sweaty palms and uh, yeah. everything. Gosh, you know whew, they're paying for this now, right? Got to concentrate and stuff. And, but, <laughs> but but before then, it's uh, it's 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 great. Play, I think, is a very important aspect. It works best, of course, when you're well prepared, so you're not um, playing catch up all the time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people do sometimes ask me about advice for younger singers. I flounder a little bit, but one of the things I do come back to is, is being prepared because when you are prepared, then you can play. And if not, and I, I definitely one or two operatic experiences I've had where for whatever reason, hopefully not um, uh, uselessness on my part, I've been ca- having to catch up and, and that's, that's, that's not playing so much. That's, I get, can get frustrated with myself then because I can't play, but when you're when you're happy with it with a role and you know what you're doing then you can play that's great <laughs> that's it a fantastic like were, answer i love that yeah it sounded like you got a time out for not preparing and that's why you didn't have fun but <laughs> 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 well, you you'll know because you find yourself um you find your, your name on the call sheet for extra coaching <laughs> oh, oh dear oh. <laughs> Let, let me let me give you an example now. I'm, I'm in a mood for confessions, obviously. So let me give an example of something. Just don't tell anybody, obviously. You know, then. Um, <laughs> it, it came to mind um, uh, a couple of years back when I was doing um, a Papageno in the Magic Flute. I was doing it for the first time in German because uh, I'd done it uh, at E and O before, always in English. Now, putting it into German was a different thing, and there wasn't much time for this. This is at the Royal Opera House and um, the rehearsals, particularly for a revival of a a well-known show, there's just not much time in the diary. So you need to work quickly and efficiently. Everybody is terribly charming and really lovely and supportive. Um, But I realized that despite all the work I'd done, having not having done it before in German was my Achilles heel. And I was beginning to trip myself up in rehearsals because I was worried that I wouldn't be in the same place as lots of my colleagues who obviously had done it before. And my, my lovely tenor was Swiss German, so his German was wonderful anyway. And, and I was beginning to, it was beginning to become an issue for me. And it meant that all the stage business that I was doing, I couldn't absorb that and get the words right at the same time. And I was beginning to feel I was making a fool of myself. So the only way I could think to do this was I, I used to come in um, before rehearsals um, an hour or two early into the space and I've got the recording, you know, a German recording on my iPhone. I plug it into the uh, sound system. They showed me how to do that into the sound system and play it over the sound system, the big speakers at the Royal Opera House rehearsal oh. rooms. And then I would just sing and do the action to do the business that's required of me over and over and over again until I had sorted out mechanically exactly what I need to be seeing when I'm singing this word and what I'm holding in my hand when I sing this word and the wretched pan pipes don't forget those uh, you know yeah. I got to remember to pick them up in time to breathe and blow in time yeah. it just has to be it had to be slick and it had to look effortless, and I had to remember which verse I was singing at any one time, so I didn't screw the whole thing up for oh. a so I realized that I needed to do that by myself and, and just get it nailed, and, and, I, and I got it sorted. 
Well, Papageno That's actually of all really, rules as well, yeah. like running around constantly. Yeah, yeah, you make you need to make it look fun, you know. And yeah. I wasn't having, like we said, I wasn't having fun. I was beginning to get a thing about it. And mm. everybody's far too polite to, to say anything. You know, this, is, this is Britain still, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. but, but I knew, I just knew that I, I wasn't where I wanted to be. So I just had to take care of it. Just had to sort that out and, and get it done. Yeah. But that's also just says a lot about what it takes to be on your game and for everyone to like, if you, something's not working right for you, you have to fix mm. it before, like do what you can. And like coming in two hours early is not fun for anyone, but if that's what you need to do, that's what you do yes. so that you can play. And yes. Then you can play. That you can play. And, and I think, I, I, I mean, I'm just conjecturing here. If you look around the opera industry, when I went into opera first, where people said, Oh, it's a backstabbing environment. You know, everybody hates each other and it's full of divas and things like that. Actually, the people who are not having fun and for whatever reason are not playing, they can sometimes turn that on their colleagues or onto the stage management team and give someone else a hard time. And, and it's worth, when you see that in a rehearsal room, hopefully it's not you, but when you see that happen in a rehearsal room, it's worth asking yourself, why isn't that person having fun? And there may be something going on outside the rehearsal room or in the rehearsal room that means they can't let it go in the way they want to. Uh, so for me, it's really important that I nip that in the bud for myself before I ever turn that onto a colleague. I think that is, uh, yeah. that's not the way I roll. So anyway, that's another just a thing worth considering when you see sparks fly in a rehearsal room, you know? Yeah. This brings us on to another question. Do you have a most memorable memory about being on stage or in general in the rehearsal room? That's a hard question. Cause you know, I've been doing this for quite some time now. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of these things. And there are lots of, of extraordinary moments that occur, not always when I'm singing at all. Um, here, here's, here's one for the students um, uh, amongst you, and it occurred at the Guildhall. We were doing the Rape Lucretia, which was an amazing time for me. It was actually when my wife was about to give birth to our first uh, child, uh, little girl. And um, uh, Stephen Medcalf was directing, and it was an amazing set by Francis O'Connor, and it was, it, was, it was an amazing production, actually. And... Stephen had got this amazing scene for the actual rape scene that leads up to the rape, which you don't see on stage. Um, he got this huge bed with muslin curtains all the way around it. It was lit from above and it just looked so warm, so hot there. Yeah. Um, and the two ladies singing, singing Lucretia, double cast Lucretia, um, lying there and I came in I was wearing some um, uh, just a pair of black leather trousers I barely could fit in them now I'm sorry about that but there we are and <laughs> and it became clear that Stephen wanted to ask the two women if they would go naked in this production because although they're not seen naked just the idea of it and the kind of suggestion of it from the way they ran and the, the, the they rip the curtains down at one point and hold it to themselves and it becomes clear that they are protecting themselves because they are naked. And it's a very interesting thing. And it caused a bit of a stir around the guild hall because nobody asked to go naked in that sort of way before. It's a student production, you know, whatever. And anyway, and it was eventually, 
one of the mezzos decided in a stage rehearsal, she knocked on my door before that scene came up, she said, Roddy, just to let you know, um, I'm going to do that in this rehearsal. You know, it was kind of, there was, it was going to be a closed rehearsal later on, they're going to practice it. She said, forget that. I'm going to do it in the run this afternoon. So she's in the sheets, first of all. And, and it was extraordinary because I don't, know, I don't know why this is the memory of all I choose of all. Because it's Britain inspired as well. So, so we went to the whole scene and lots of stuff. And, and I'm singing that aria, Tarquin says an aria around her. And she's all wrestling in the bed and covered up with the sheet. And then she got up and held the sheet to herself. And the vulnerability that I could see in her was, was something I hadn't seen in any of the rehearsals because this is new. It's, there's no audience or anything like that, but it's just, it's just different. And then there came the, the point where I actually threatened her and I was singing poised like a dart. And she was standing on the bed by this point. She'd run around and grab the curtains while I was holding a sheet to herself. And I was standing with this knife. Um, I was staring right at her and holding this knife up to her. And she completely froze. And it's supposed to be that quartet with Lucretia, Tarquinius, the male and female chorus. And there are only three of us singing because she just looked at me and she could see this knife and she was holding the stuff to her, to her neck, um, of protecting herself. And she just dipped out. I've never forgotten that moment of in, in, in playing in a rehearsal, when you cross, we just cross a boundary between what's real and what's not. And in a rest, I just, I just whispered to her, don't worry, it's only me. <laughs> I just needed to come back. It's, and it's an, an important experience as a man because she knows me well. She knew me really well. Um, she knows all about me. She knew that my wife was about to give birth. She knew all of that. And yet in the moment, she saw a man with a knife and she was vulnerable and she dipped out. It was, it was quite... Um, uh, remarkable experience and if, I don't know I don't know why I thought of that one but it was just one of the no but that's actually really interesting it's amazing how like even though you can do it so many times you just always have to be on your toes because you can oh you have done something so many times but if one thing changes that's it like it's a whole new atmosphere and it's something new that you like it's she was so in the moment yeah. of that time that's that's yeah. incredible. yes and the amazing thing that I think all of us chase when we rehearse something, maybe even do it on stage, when you rehearse something for the first time, or it, um, it can make you cry, it can, it can bring you to rage, it can do so many things and, and, and things bubble over and you realise, okay, I, I, I can't do that when we get to the show. I can't see the aria if I'm weeping, you know. Yeah. But then weirdly, when it comes to the shows, you've processed that, you kind of miss that overwhelming surge of emotion that rush inside you and you think oh i'm just i'm just faking it now but that's acting <laughs> that's acting that's good yeah <laughs> hopefully the audience is seeing it hopefully they are brought to those yeah. emotions and you aren't so. well I, I yeah i think we can definitely just say from that story and the question of you know what it's like to be an opera singer you need to just it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> and someone's coming with a knife on stage, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to round off, I know you kind of mentioned that you're, you're, not, you're not one for giving one set piece of advice, especially to, to young artists, but the, there are a lot of conservatoire students listening to this. What would be your piece of advice for a young artist stepping out into 
the real world? The, the thing is, is that you asked me this question at a most extraordinary time, and we haven't mentioned the pandemic situation at all. We've managed to get all this way without doing yes. it once. And <laughs> we don't want to think yeah, about it. <laughs> I, could, I could totally sympathize with that. I, I, would have to, I would just have to say that the idea of being at music college now, or even leaving music college now, if I were that age, would fill me with, with dread because the, I, all I can see at the moment is an abyss where all the opportunities used to be. Um, so the, the opera companies that would be starting up, would be the natural place for someone starting up to look at, you know, or the core societies up and down the country that need Messiah soloists right now, you know, they, they, they're not allowed to. And the, the music societies would have you doing your first recitals if that's what you are, if, that, if that's your thing. It feels like um, there's nowhere to go just now. And I can totally understand that. So my initial thought right now, after all that training that you've done, when the, the carpet has been pulled away from you and then set lights to, <laughs> and then thrown off a cliff, you know, is the hope that you've, that you've got what it takes to hang on for the next couple of years. And, and what, that, what, it, what it takes could be anything. It could be a, a complete change of career circumstance or, or, or something or all sorts of things come to mind. Just something just to keep you going for however long it takes for us to get out of this, dig our way out and for those opportunities to return. Um, I think there's a lot of onus on, uh, on some of our, the more established uh, um, performers, artists to, to help uh, uh, watch this space because something's coming your way soon. The initiative to try and do something, do something to help and the promoters and opera casting agents and things like that. Uh, so that in the short term is, is, a, is, a, is a quick response to that. Once all this is over and we can look back on those coronavirus years as a ha ha ha, my goodness, wasn't that something? Uh, tell your tell your children about that. Then, then just in, 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 in the short term, it, it has always occurred to me that uh, the adage that you never know who, in the, who is in the audience is so true. I could bore on with stories about people who've come up to me afterwards and said, oh, that's a nice recital, you know, in some wet Wednesday somewhere. And it turned out to be the major casting agent for this and that and all that stuff. It, is, it has absolutely happened to me that that is so. I have gone into everything I do. Uh, can I put my hand on my heart here and just, think, just check this is true? I hope this is true. I've gone into everything I've done with the same level of um, importance of, of commitment, whether it's for some core society um, you know, on the edge of the country, which none of us have ever heard, or whether it's at the Albert Hall or something like that, because it's the, I think the music deserves it. But it, it's worth putting that energy and effort into something because the music deserves it. And also the payoff is that the conductor who really enjoyed what you did will then ring his friend and say, oh, I had this young baritone, he's called Roderick Williams, um, uh, and he, he, he got all the notes right. He sang very nicely, he smiled and said, thank you. You might want to use him. And then from that comes the next gig and the next gig and the next gig. Uh, and people say, you're only as good as your last performance and sort of stuff and whatever that means. But oh my God, it's true, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any last words of wisdom or where people can find you if they would like to reach out? I do hope 
people reach out. And, and this plugs into what I was just saying about um, older artists um, being able to give back. Uh, I, I think it's, it's never been more important. So uh, anybody who, who, <laughs> who's listened to me prattle on and, th and thinks, gosh, I'd like to hear more of that. Unbelievable. <laughs> anybody who, who, who wants to engage, uh, please come and find me. And it's very easy to find me through my agents. You know, they're a, they're a wonderful and very um, conscientious screening service. So, that, <laughs> so they'll, they'll put you through to me and, 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 and we can, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to work with people and, and, and suggest things. In actual fact, there are green shoots of bits of work um, coming up this this autumn. Though I did just have something—a very nice trip—cancelled um, uh, today. Not to worry, you know that happens. I'm used to it now. But um, the things that are happening in this country are, are still going, and I'm just in rehearsal at the moment for this English National Opera drive-in performance of Bohème. Yes, how uh, exciting! Yes, we just saw the concept showing today, and. Uh, Obviously, I can't give anything away because, I mean, I don't know why there's a convention about that, but um, obviously, I'm more than my... It's to make people buy tickets. <laughs> is that what it is? All oh, right, okay, okay. Well, I can... Oh, okay. Well, I can whet your appetite just by saying that we, as the cast, um, were blown away by it. We were all of us going, wow, that looks so cool. Wow. I, I had a costume fitting today that made me laugh out loud. So, um, uh, so I think just the, the whole concept, the idea in itself, is 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 really funky and 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 is a wonderful response to the situation we find ourselves in amazing fun check that out everyone cool. <laughs> well thank you so much for being here um really enjoyed it thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure thank you both so question of the week this week was if you could have dinner with any character in an opera, who would it be? Another, <laughs> another cracker question. All thanks to Abby, all credits to Abby on this. And her, uh, <laughs> and her like creativity spurts in the middle of the night. <laughs> I know, I have to stop for that. It's just, it's really good. But anyway, on to your responses. Yes, so we got from, I'm gonna say, Yulia Skovich said, would be Tosca or Manon. Yeah, I mean, the, the power, the power characters, you know? The power Puccinis, the power Puccinis. That. And then we had Ruth Clement, friend of the podcast, indeed, Figaro, because he simply has a, f has a funny and above all good character. We all love Figaro. You can't not love Figaro. We all love Figaro. <laughs> we actually had another vote for Figaro, didn't we? From... Yes, by Joyce W.S. Wong, who said, Figaro, he seemed like fun. So very similar response, but definitely, definitely true. And then we had Emily Rue, who said, Susanna or Brunhilde, any strong woman, basically. I mean, I, t I, I wouldn't mind having dinner with Brunhilde and having her like have like a hog's head <laughs> on the table. I feel like it would be like a very like warrior, like middle-aged, yeah. like middle-ages type feast yeah. with like a bunch of like drunk men on the table and she'll be like you <laughs> clean up or like she'd be just be like get your act together guys or i'll take it 
or I won't take you to Valhalla. Have you ever done one of those medieval experience nights where you all sit and you're no, like... No, I so want to, I've though. done one. It's I incredible. So want to. It is incredible. Like, there was jousting and obviously, like, not real. Like, there were actors doing, like, jousting and stuff. It's so much fun. So much fun. Claire Temps says, the Duke from Rigoletto, because then I would get the chance to punch him. And then, of course, we had a vote from Mirko for Queen of the Night. It would be interesting to hear about her problems. <laughs> she has got a problem, though, hasn't she? <laughs> she has. It has quite a few. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then from Spamfalicious, we had Minnie from Fanchura. I have to say, I, I really like that one, too. She's kind of like that Brunhilde-type lady, like... Owns her I'm stuff. just really impressed that most of the responses there are just about powerful women. So thank know, you. Too. Or or treating men badly for being for acting yes. out. Yeah. Girl power. Girl power. <laughs> and Lucy Ann Williams wrote in I love this response. Darth Vader in Star Wars The Opera. That hasn't been written yet. It would of course be a trilogy of operas. Imagine. Imagine. Now, look, I have to admit, I am not a huge Star Wars fan, which I know is probably not a popular opinion. Um, but Not on this not podcast. On this, <laughs> but would, would I like to see Star Wars the opera? Yes, I absolutely would. I think it's one of those things where it's just like you'll get a lot, a lot of comedy out of it because it will be so like... I just would love to see how they would write music for, like, C-3PO or um, R2-D2 and the kind of, like, like, what would it be, like, a, like, a, like, a techno thing? Would it be, I'm just very excited for this idea. (laughs) Then 360 of Opera said, not Don Giovanni, which was controversial to what someone sent into Alternative Classical, and they said... Don Giovanni. So we got both sides of the corner. Yeah. And then Zaposia said Tomsky from Queen of Spades. I love that opera. I had a feeling you would. That reminds me. Now I remember what I was trying to say to you in the first um, segment. Did you see that, because I know Turn of the Screw is your favorite opera, that there's a Turn of the Screw series on, like, a recreation of Turn of the Screw on Netflix at the moment. Oh, yes. Um, the Bly Manor thing. Yes, I, I have not seen it, but I saw on your stories, you were like, this is basically Turn of the Screw, so I've like, I've got it on my list. <laughs> I know, I have to watch it this weekend. I'm like, I need to see it. Yeah. I need to know. Anyway, back to this week's question. <laughs> um, and then finally, we had NEG Wright Jade, Neg Wright Jane, Jade, Neg, Neg Wright Jade. So, I'm going to say that's the name. I really apologize if we mispronounced something. But they said Sister Helen Prejean from Dead Man Walking, which I still haven't seen yet, but it has been coming up a lot on this podcast. Recently. It has. I, f- I feel we should maybe have a, uh, well, socially distant movie night and watch that opera. <laughs> well, you know what words I'm sick of? What? Socially distant. Yeah. yeah, me too. Me too. But yeah, what about you? Okay. Now, running on the theme of our guest this week and his amazing performance of it, I would love to have dinner with Papageno. I can see that. Because, <laughs> um, hey, I love the role of Papageno, but he's just, like, such a just comedy character, and I think we'd have a fun night. 
I could see that. Also, he, you know he likes a good feast? Like, he talks about yeah, it? And wine. He loves wine. And I also love he wine. He loves wine. So, win-win. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking along those lines of, like, a comical character to have dinner with and it would just be fun is the mother, is the, um, all the, the Duchess in uh, Daughter of the Regiment, the Marquis of Birkenfield. I feel like she's a lot like uh, Maggie Smith or the Dowager oh. in Downton Abbey. Yeah. And I just find that would be very entertaining to have dinner with someone like that. Thanks for sending those in, guys. Yeah. episode 46 and season three of AA Opera Podcast. And thank you so much to Roderick Williams for being here and talking to us. And since then, since he's spoken to us, he's also done the La Boheme at Ali Pali, which looked incredible. It was incredible. I watched it on Sky Arts and if you missed it, you can still watch it over on Sky Arts. So make sure that you check that out. That's very exciting. But yes, this is the end of season three, which I know I'm, I'm bittersweet about. Just, I'm not, I'm excited for season four, but I also just, I really enjoy our like weekly catch-ups. I know, I know. It's been so much fun and this season has flown over, but in our heads, we've already started season four. That's already underway and we are so excited to reveal to you guys the guests that we have joining us and also we will be super active still over on the social media so make sure that you're following us at AA Opera Pod everywhere and if you'd like to support this podcast check us out at Patreon on Patreon we are www.patreon.com forward slash AA Opera and if you'd like to get in touch with us you can contact us at aaoperapod at gmail.com We'll see see you in the next season, guys. See you next season. Bye. Bye.